Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So I'd like to welcome everybody this evening to The Poetry Project. I'm the director of The Poetry Project, Stacy Samazic. Um, we're pleased and honored to be hosting this memorial reading to remember and celebrate Bill Berkson's life and legacy. I don't have to explain to anybody here how foundational his work and very ethos was and is to the Poetry Project. He read here at least 30 times since our founding in 1966, uh, 50 years ago to the very month, actually. Um, in every kind of event that we do, he taught workshops and published regularly in the world and the newsletter. Last March, he sent me a note about how happy he was that the Poetry Project continued to thrive and thanked me for my part in keeping the wonder alive. And I was totally floored by that and how generous and thoughtful that was and how seemingly to me it came out of the blue, but it was probably for him um, just something that, that Bill did. Um, so uh, in the spirit of keeping wonder alive, I'd love to start the celebration of Bill by hearing his poems read by his loved ones. Um, and afterwards, uh, we'll reconvene in the parish hall for more wine. And um, I think that's it. I, everybody should have a program. And um, every reader will introduce the next reader from the program that is right here. So please welcome Moses Berkson. Thank you, Stacy, for everything that, I don't know where you went, but oh, for everything, for putting this together. And thank you all for coming out for my father, AKA Bill. My father used to say, don't write poetry unless you have to. He never said this directly to me though, because by the time I got the poetry bug, sometime in high school, and started writing the worst poems and prose, he knew I had no future in it, or any intention in having a future in it. So he never said a discouraging word to me. And instead, he took great pleasure in watching me flail about as if I were the baby brother he never had. So apropos of that, here's a pretty bad poem that I wrote that I think he'd enjoy. It's called Here's Henry, which were the last words I said to Bill. And a lot of it's taken from my memory of tape recordings that my mother and father made of me and my siblings. Um, and so it's kind of a, my attempt at a cut up. Here's Henry. I tried to draw him out and also wish him well, but it's awkward. Do you want to tell me a story? No. Do you want to tell me about your tattoo? Superman and um, Clark Kent. Aquaman. A cigarette made you look sexy in pictures only because your hands were spectacular and it drew the eye to them. What do I do? What do I do? This old man played nine on my plate. This old man played nine on my spaceship. 
played 14 on my six, rolling dome on my strawberry, a ghost growing toast. Life is spot a stream. Press the button and we'll listen to it. You lay on the sofa and Figaro the cat lays on your ankles. Then he shat on the spot where your head would be. There's a large boom of a cough in the kitchen. I did it! And a whine. I don't want to do that. Okay, don't do anything. Shushu sings, I wish I knew how it feels to be free, and yells, get out! That chair is a hundred years old. We're reading lots of the pages, mostly. We're at the part of the dark side. I like winter better. Tell me, can you do that in Bolinas? Yeah. There's a trumpet playing in the living room. Maybe math? Do they wear blue jeans? No, modern American families don't do it. Could I? No. Well, if you start to scream, gentle, these are for you. Who is this writing? These are all yours, yours truly. All right, that's hot, a record player. Surfing a gnarly wave. Thank you, Bill. Snazzy wazzy, wazzy snazzy. This is the big one. Bill, come back. Shit, I know what it is. Bill, come back. Magic, magic. Bill, this is for you. Oh well. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. Why don't you tickle me? We should really get our shit together. Whose is this? Yours, all of it. From Plato to comic books, I'm versatile. I wish you could have gotten back on the line. There you go, Bill. There you go, Bill. I'm going to read another one of, well, one of his poems. Um, since June 26, June 26, yeah, um, I've had the most surreal experience of being shown these views of my father's life that I'd either never seen or only really knew in periphery. And I've been particularly fascinated with the way he chameleoned when he was younger from this dashing uptown man about town to a man about town everywhere else. And I came across a profile written about him when I think he was in his late 20s in a fashion magazine. And there was this photograph of him in a three-piece suit with his hair perfectly coiffed, and a telephone in his hand and a cigarette in the other. And in it he said, a man should dress in a way that everyone in the room will want to sleep with him. <laughs> and I love that that's the same man that wrote poems like a finial, which is my favorite Bill Berkson poem. And the best reading of that poem that I know of was right here. And it's seared in my memory, and I'm going to give it a crack. So here's my best Bill Berkson imitation. <clears throat> a finial. 
I can see where the sky takes a bend that the fog bank hasn't blunted. I see the drawers pulled out for access to same. If you are so inclined, matter can be sensitive to the need for a shove. I feel the finesse of particles at hand. The origins of shape stare out from indelicate depths where subjectivity can't follow, spilling itself, evidently, perhaps. And now, Ron Padgett. Spent many a sleepless night trying to figure out what I was going to say to you tonight. And I realized I should just come out with it and say that Bill was one of the finest people I've ever known. I mean, really up there. Um, we met in, uh, I think, 1962, 63, and uh, it was one of those moments in which you hit it off right away with the person you're talking to. I met him at a party, an opening, one of those things, reading maybe. And I remember just falling into this wonderful conversation with him, and it just seemed like we'd known each other for a long, long time, and it turns out we did. It turns out we did. Um, and what, what did I see in him? Well, he was, in, as most of you know, a very, very smart guy. Um, he was curious and open-minded. Um, he was graceful intellectually and socially and personally, and, and he was gentlemanly in this great way. That is to say, he was not mannered. He was, he was a, a deep down gentleman. And he, he had a, with me, he was always good-humored, uh, very thoughtful and fair-minded in his judgments of things, and helpful. I could always count on Bill if I needed something, like I needed to know, what did Frank O'Hara mean when he said X, Y, Z? And Bill was always right back with it, or any kind of advice or help in any way, he was, he was as they say, always there. Uh, and I knew I could count on him. And I liked counting on him because he had probity. He had probity. It's not a word you hear much these days, but he had it up to there. And it made me admire him so much and to feel that I could trust him uh, with anything. And that's a rare feeling, uh, I think. Um, and finally, well not finally, but he was so civilized in the very best sense of the word. He made, I realized the other day, he made me feel that being part of a civilization was a good thing. <laughs> it's an opinion I don't always express to myself. Um, and uh, finally, he was a, quite a courageous person. Uh, as many of you know, he, he had some uh, medical issues, to put it mildly, uh, over the years. And uh, uh, more recently, uh, I, not too long ago, I got a call from Bill, and uh, I, I knew he was, he was going into the hospital to have some s surgery done on his skull. And uh, a very serious surgery. And uh, I, I said, Bill, where are you? And uh, I was wondering, where are you? And he said, I'm in San Francisco. I said, I know, but where? What's going on? 
and he said, uh, I, I said, why are you calling? And he said, well, I wanted to find out, I heard, your, I heard your wife was having some issues, she wasn't feeling well, and so I thought I would call and see how your wife is doing. And I told him that she's doing pretty well. I said, where are you? And he said, well, I'm actually lying on a hospital gurney getting ready for my operation. And he thinks to call me and to ask about my wife's health. I mean, I mean, you know. So I was very grateful for his friendship. And I'm going to conclude by reading a, a poem that I wrote uh, after uh, hearing that Bill's obituary was going to appear in the New York Times, or it had appeared that day. And I went out and bought the Times and uh, wrote this poem. <clears throat> it's called Bill Times. Two weeks ago, you and I walked down First Avenue a few blocks before goodbye. And now, walking the same way, with you tucked under my arm, I think about going back home to write down these lines while you go on to someone else and out into the whole world like the perfect gentleman you are and always will be true and loyal friend. Now I'll open the paper and let you go. Uh, next person is going to be Alex Katz. Hi. Uh, the first time I met Billy, he crashed a, a dinner party of Donald Rolls. And to, uh, I mean, it was beyond my comprehension that anyone would crash a party like that. Donald Roll uh, threw the, the fanciest parties in the city, high intellectuals, and very hard to get invited there. <laughs> it was my first invitation, and Bill crashed it. And um, it was still is a mystery to me. I think he had a sense of self that was beyond my imagination to do that, you know? That was like the first time. The second time, was he came to my studio with Frank O'Hara, and they both bought little paintings. And uh, it was kind of great, because I'd been making paintings for about eight or 10 years, and they were not being sought out by anyone, except some painters bought some. So it was a real big support, so I'm very grateful for his support and Frank's. And the uh, other thing that, interested me about Bill was, uh, at the time, um, Frank was teaching and he had uh, like four, four people that were being, he was investing in, so to speak, and it was Frank Lemer, Tony Toe, Jim Brody, and Bill. And uh, they all were very good. Uh, but Bill had this, Bill's uh, difference was that Bill was really imperson more impersonal his work was much more impersonal than theirs and bigger, much larger. That's what you get by impersonal work. And uh, to me, he related as much to Wallace Stevens as he did to Frank. He had a containment that was really kind of admirable. And uh, 
the, uh, it was amazing to have that many uh, terrific poets at the time for Bill. But the most extraordinary thing about Bill was uh, uh, Frank and Leroy Jones was editing uh, Culture, a, a, a magazine that you all should get back and read. And Bill wrote an article in it, and I was totally amazed. He was in his 20s, and I said, this is as good as it gets. And uh, I, I, asked, I said to Frank, is this as good as I think it is? And Frank said, yes, it is. And uh, I thought that was, uh, that separated him from the others. It, uh, it still is a mystery to me, the, the sense of self and containment that he had and the uh, uh, confidence of his inner self. And we used to exchange uh, books, uh, what to read for a while, and then it drifted away. Anyway, I'll, I'll cut it short. I'll say, so long, Bill, we'll miss you. I'm Alan Bernheimer. Bill was my teacher for a poetry, year-long poetry workshop my senior year at college that, in addition to workshops there with Ted Berrigan and Peter Sheldahl, and workshops here in this building with Ron Paget and Dick Gallup set me or helped set me on the road I've taken for better or worse. I felt a particular kinship with Bill because we both grew up in Manhattan apartment buildings. And you get a sense of, uh, of that here. Back then, Bill gave me a, a piece of advice way back. See, he said, poetry is not a career. I asked him about that a couple of years ago, and he looked at me quizzically for a moment and said, but maybe a way of life. The way of life in Manhattan apartments is pretty well described in Bill's piece, Algebra, from his collection, Serenade. It costs the apartment tenor owners in the cooperative $3,000 per apartment to install automatic self-service elevators for access to every floor, plus the understanding that the former elevator men operators are not going to be laid off. Now the elevator men will stand around in the lobby on the ground floor, sorting mail and answering calls on the house phone and occasionally assisting the doorman, say if the doorman goes to fetch a cab for one of the tenants or a guest. Also, closed circuit television gets installed in every elevator and in the lobby at strategic points, levels of privacy thereby being ensured or diminished, depending. It is work, an ordinary ceremony, but at least one tenant believes it is unjust. Stunning to think of the men who taking parts as doormen or elevator operators and likewise the maintenance crew of handymen made the building their place of business for in some cases as many years from the time I came to live there as a child to now when I go there as a visitor to the three or four who are still there working, greetings. One, I would ask, do you still go fishing in Sheepshead Bay? A couple of others still maintain their high Irish brogues, charcoal gray uniforms with matte black shoes, 
And there was Eddie McCaffrey who would say, lifting his fist, one blow from McCaffrey would do ya. Figure with the A, B, and C sides, 36 apartments. My mother lives in 11A. After 37 years, Harold's well-trimmed pencil-lined mustache has somehow managed to remain permanent jet black. When Bill read that in 1979 on a radio program that I hosted, he, uh, he said it was from a, a work in progress called Young Manhattan, but we all know that that title, in fact, was given over to a collaboration that he and Ann Waldman did, a wonderful collaboration. Uh, in a similar urban vein, I want to read a very short poem I wrote for Bill for the Fest trip that Jarrett Ernest and Isabel Sorrell edited a few years ago that uh, Pressed Wafer published. It's called Futurama for Bill Berkson. The difference between truth serum and asterism, the dark of the matinee and fathomably lovely dirigible shadow moving at dirigible speed across the 1920s Oakland Tribune facade a year ago today, apartment life with caper delivery just around the cornice maybe Monk in Oslo, and elevator men at this remove. The next uh, person up here is, is Larry Fagan. Uh, two little poems by uh, the, the Iranian-American uh, poet, uh, Mohammed Niazman, who's a friend of Bill's and a friend of mine, a favorite of Bill's. Uh, this is called Art. He uses a modified comb. It lacks teeth. Breathing still bewilders him. His intent is nonspecific. He continues to brush his butch, all the soft tissue. Now, with a big thumb, he draws a perfect circle on the wall, a single staring eye. No man shall speak without a name, Bill. And this is just Bill Berkson, Bill Berkson. Brunch on Monday, brunch on Tuesday, I've stained my shirt with omelets and tea. Why don't we appreciate how much the dry cleaners love us as valued customers, not poets? I'll buy this time. You have nice hands dunking the biscotti. This microphone is scaring me a little bit. Uh, One of the things that Bill and I uh, shared a love for was Broadway musicals. And I used to tease him with this song from the great musical Showboat from 1926. It was the first musical, great musical. And it's from the girl's point of view. And the guy she's singing about is the complete opposite of our Bill. So. I should just recite this, but uh, until three decades ago, I used to sing a little bit. 
now the spirit's willing, but the frogs are croaking, and uh, I won't ask you for forgiveness, uh, so throw your tomatoes and do your Christmas shopping early. <clears throat> I don't have a pitch pipe, I'm just gonna wing it. I used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover. Someday I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came around my way. I always used to fancy that he'd be one of the godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head. Like the heroes bold in the books I read. I'm going to have to drop this down. But along came Bill, who's not my type at all. You'd meet him on the street and never notice him. His form and face, his manly grace, are not the kind that you would find in a statue. But I can't explain. It's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's wonderful, because he's just my bill. <clears throat> he can't play golf or tennis or polo or sing a solo or row. He isn't half as handsome as dozens of men that I know. He isn't tall and straight and slim, and he dresses far worse than Ted or Jim. Oh, I can't explain why he should be just the only man in the world for me. He's just my Bill, an ordinary guy. He hasn't got a thing that I can brag about, and yet to be upon his knee. So comfy and roomy seems natural to me. Oh, I can't explain. It's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's, I don't know, because he's just my bill. Okay, throw your tomatoes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Robert Storr. When I sat down over there, um, Ellen Bernheimer pegged me. You're from the art world, aren't you? He says, there are two worlds represented here, poetry and art, and you're from the art world. Um, as many of you know, the art world and the poetry world used to intermingle all the time. Some of us who are not associated at all with the poetry world nonetheless read it a lot. Uh, and I read poetry to keep my art prose as clean as possible. Uh, and uh, it is Bill's poetry and Peter Shellwell's poetry and many other poetries of people in this room that I've read. And of course, I have my favorites among the French. Um, I also value the fact that Bill stood up for belletristic criticism in a time when it was sneered at and when the serious art criticism was thought to be automatically pedantic, archaic, um, academic, etc., etc., heavyweight, serious stuff. Uh, and the uh, undervaluing of seriousness that doesn't uh, flex its muscles all the time, that doesn't show its muscles all the time, 
is something I valued in his writing. I both valued the practice of it and his stance in this regard. Now, we also had many artists that we were interested in common, which is what brought us together some, I don't know how many, 30 years ago almost. I wrote a book on Philip Guston, my first book, and I went to Bill to find out about his letters to Guston because they had an extensive correspondence. And that's how we first met. Uh, it followed many, many, many points of overlap, among them Alex Katz, uh, and also uh, Bruce Nauman through Connie Llewellyn, who did a show with uh, Bruce that uh, I was involved in. So we kept finding each other in other contexts and sharing um, you know, the things that one shares when you have a serious interlocutor who is, as I said, not always so serious. Um, in any case, um, I was told that we were going to read poetry tonight, and the little bit like um, some of the others, I got kind of stage fright. Not, God, I can't read poetry. I can't even read my own prose out loud, so what am I going to do with somebody's poem? Uh, I think I'd better not. Um, but there is this one title, a one-word poem, or one-sentence poem, uh, which has been rattling around my brain for a long time. Uh, it's from the most re one of his most recent books, I think the next to last one. It's called, it says, Expect Delays, which is a phrase that we hear on the weather reports, in airports, all kinds of places. And I don't know why it struck me so hard until I sort of did know why it struck me so hard. Um, as all of you know, Bill was ill for a very, very long time. Uh, he had catastrophic circumstances to face, and he looked at them uh, with an amazing equanimity and uh, courage in dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff, and also just in general, and accepting something we all know, but that most of us don't have to think about that often, which is how imminent mortality actually is. Um, and I was reminded in the context of this title of my favorite story of Jorge Luis Borges, which is called The Secret Miracle. And it's about a writer who is captured by the Nazis, imprisoned, and condemned to death. And he is before the firing squad, the officer giving the command raises his arm, and he notices in the back there's a little faucet dripping water. Um, and then nothing happens. And he begins to sort of await the realization that something is going differently than planned. He looks across and he realizes that the drop from the faucet has just been suspended in air. Um, and he realizes that suddenly he has this parenthesis of time that he wasn't expecting. And since he was a troubled writer who was battling some great ode or something he was writing, uh, he realized that he had time to finish it. So in his head, he finished this poem that he'd been working on for years and years and years and years and years. And I more or less consider that what Bill's circumstance was over the last decade was such a parenthesis. And he did an enormous amount in it. And uh, it kept leaking out in small press publications and this more substantial book and so on. And I am, for one, very grateful. I'm very sorry that the flow has stopped. But I will go back and reread the ones that came. Thank you. And my job is to introduce Vincent Katz. Um, Bill was unique. He was exquisite. He was rarissima avis. But he also had this other side, which was that he was, he believed in the work of being a writer, and he was really like a working man in that regard. Um, and I learned a lot from him over the years in a lot of different ways, never formally. Um, but one of the things I learned from him was discipline. He had this incredible drive to 
write, and his writing was always thoroughly researched and well thought out. Um, yeah, so he was those two things. And he was also this, this species of writer that I've identified and many others have also observed, which can be called the poet critic. And these people tend to go between these two poles and they interact, but they tend not to write fiction or nonfiction. They just write their poetry and write about other things. So I wrote an essay on that topic about Bill Berkson for the, the fest trip that was presented to him. And what I'd like to do now is to read from that, but I'm not gonna read any of my own words. I'm just going to read the words of Bill Berkson that I quoted in this essay, and then I'll read two short poems. The main point is to give people something to read, to be accurate about the work. Predictable language suits only an art with predictable meanings. If criticism has all the words in place, a fixed vocabulary, it has stopped looking and won't listen for the words that might be there for the work. Poets bring a technical proficiency to art writing, as well as an attitude that, in art's increasingly institutional settings, seems proportionately ever more off the wall. In poetry, for it to work, both reader and writer need to be aware that every word counts, for or against the poem, that is. A poem is built word for word, one then another, like frame by frame, shot by shot in a film. At the edges of meaning, words return to their peculiar physicality, which then provokes undreamed of connotations. Poetry, as all the art people would tell you, is beside the point. No cultural currency, they say, because the attendance figures are so low. Fooey. Poetry strikes back, gloriously beside the point. It does its work and leeches into the general culture, which it seems to have done for the past millennium, practically. Poetry has its durable density, its fructifying nonsense, its interventions as subtle, as surreptitious as a leech field, its ingredients percolating through the common culture as we speak. The specific power of contemporary poetry may lie in its arcane randomness. A poet's collected work over time will be usually about many different things, possessed of diverse effects, and often done in different styles, even though the characteristic tone may be consistent. Good poetry tends to be highly nuanced, and nuance is not much tolerated in the time famine that is today. Artists you know as friends and heroes and teachers die. You miss their company. And what compensation there is, large enough to matter, arrives in the form of a wider, deeper, larger than life, one would almost venture to say, sense of their work, what it amounts to, where they took it, and how increasingly distinct, as well as necessary, it feels to be. 
baby's awake now. And now there's the lively sound of a panel truck heading due southwest along Elm Road, edge of dusk, the densest light to drive by. The underbrush has brown fringe and small silent birds. I saw the rainbow fire. I saw the need to talk. I saw a unicorn and a red pony. And I didn't want any deviled eggs. I drove home with my collar up. We're alive. You do alarm me to the fact. The light is on the window in the air. And breath comes faster than the hounds to sanction what remembered, what stuck. Heine song, the rose, the lily, the dove, the sun. I loved them all in love's mad swoon. I love them no more. I love only one, little one, live one, pure and true. Self-same source of all love's flows, lily, dove, sun, and rose. And next is Kate Sutton. Um, I'm going to read my remarks because as Bill knew as well as anyone, I have a tendency to ramble. Um, it should be strange to share the same love with a room full of strangers, but this is Bill's legacy. Bill, the Bill I knew, I should say, because from hearing the other readers, we all knew a different shade of Bill, but the Bill I knew was a constant collector of words and phrases, visual images, bits of trivia, even sugar packets, and of course, of friendships. We're all here because we had the honor and delight of knowing him, and we'll continue to hold on to that honor and that delight. It's not all he left us, of course. Every interaction with Bill always left behind a trail of notes in the margins, little list of things to look up later that rarely ever got looked up, but maybe the true ple pleasure was just in the jotting things down part. For instance, I remember I showed him a, a picture of my grandmother, and he said she looked like Margaret Sullivan. Was that a good thing? Oh yes, a very good thing. Now the emails have stopped, but I've still got those margin notes. Margaret Sullivan. George Stubbs' whistle jacket, raring to go at the National Gallery. Who's got the better ball in the jack, Judy Garland or Fats Domino? Lufaton and Wolf William Carlos Williams' fish. These are the breadcrumbs of our friendship, trails that lead me back to the sense of wonder Bill always managed to inspire. Bill left his own breadcrumbs in his writing, where he gathered so many observations and little loose phrases. Bill's love of words couldn't be contained to just one language. He wasn't one to let a little thing like not knowing the language stop him from translating it. When he came to me back in 2006, determined to translate two Russian poems, I have to say I was a little stunned at the offer. These weren't any two poems after all, but Pasternak and Pushkin. Pushkin, the, the light and life of Russian language, who helped define its very limits. Suffice to say, if, if there's an irregular verb in the Russian language, it was born at the tip of Pushkin's pen. 
His charm and his grace were legendary, his spark notoriously hard to capture. Even the most experienced translator still quivers at the challenge. But in some ways, it's like Bill internally spoke with a language he couldn't technically read. He skipped the syntax and went straight to the soul of the poem. In doing so, he also awakened in me a certain courage, the knowledge that it's okay to sometimes dip your fingers into someone else's poem, that that's precisely where the joy lies in the messy revelry and not just the scholarly prim preservation. This gift Bill left me was laid out in his last book, Invisible Oligarchs, which also contains the two poems we translated together. I'd like to read Pushkin's poem here. It's called The Prophet by Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, published in 1827. Parched with the spirit's thirst, I crossed an endless desert sunken gloom, and a six-winged seraph came where the tracks met and I stood lost. Fingers light as dreams he laid upon my lids. I opened wide my eagle eyes and gazed around. He laid his fingers on my ears and they filled with roaring sound. I heard the music of the spheres, the flight of angels through the skies, the beasts that crept beneath the sea, the heady surge of the vine. And like a lover kissing me, he rooted out this tongue of mine, fluent in lies and vanity. He tore his fainting lips apart, and with his right hand steeped in blood, he armed me with a serpent's dart. With his bright sword, he split my breast. My heart leaped up to him in a single bound. A glowing, livid coal he pressed into the hollow of the wound. There in the desert, I lay dead, and God called out to me and said, Rise, prophet, rise and hear and see, and let my works be seen and heard by all who turn aside from me and burn them with my fiery word. I'd like to introduce Lewis Warsh. I'm going to read this poem called Traveler's Companion that Bill wrote um, in 1971, um, not long after he made this big move in his life from New York City where he had grown up and lived for 30 years to a small town in Northern California where he then lived for 25 years. Um, and it was, he had a, um, a kind of a very prolific life for those 25 years. Um, he wrote a lot of poems. He edited a, a magazine called Big Sky um, and concurrently Big Sky Books. And he had a family. Um, and he wrote, um, did some art writing, mainly um, about the, the art that was coming out of San Francisco in those days. Um, Bolinas, if you don't know, this place is about an hour north of San Francisco. Um, you go over the Golden Gate Bridge and then you go over this mountain, um, Mount Tamapias. And it's a trip that Bill probably took hundreds of times. Um, and you go up the mountain and then you go down the other side of the mountain and you land in a town called Stinson Beach. And then you drive seven miles to this town called Bolinas. And Bolinas was right on the ocean. Um, on the Pacific Ocean, and there's a main street um, with some stores, and then there's a winding road up to an area called the Mesa. Um, that road is called Park Avenue. Um, and the Mesa was w where Bill lived and where most people 
um, lived. Um, and Bill could walk outside his house and walk a few yards and um, stand on a ridge overlooking the ocean. And at night, he could see the lights of San Francisco in the distance. Um, it was really a, a, an incredibly beautiful place. Um, and in their early 70s, right after Bill came, there was suddenly a, an influx of poets to this small town, which is less than a thousand people. Um, um, Tom Clark and Joanne Kiger were already living there, and then Robert Creeley and Bobby Louise Hawkins showed up, Aram Saroyan showed up, um, Louis McAdams, um, Philip Whalen was there for a long time. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving people out. and. Um, and then people began visiting, and Ted Berrigan and Alice Notley came for a period of time, and Joe Brainerd came um, for the summer of um, 1971 and wrote a journal called the Bolinas Journal, which Bill published as a book. Um, and it became some kind of crazy small town live scene with all these poets who were coming from elsewhere. Um, Richard Browdigan came for a while and ended his life there in a house in Bolinas. Um, and at some point, Lawrence Ferlinghetti of City Lights Books came and um, decided he would publish an anthology of the Bolinas poets, and it was called On the Mesa. And it sort of documents this moment in time. Um, by the end of the 1970s, most of the people had left. Um, Bill stayed, as I said, for 25 years. Um, which seems like a long time. Um, um, his movement from New York to California always seemed like a very radical thing to do. Um, he seemed very much a person of New York, um, as we all know, but um, then suddenly he was living in this kind of small town. Um, and uh, um, I thought it was kind of amazing. Um, and I want to read this poem that he dedicated to Joanne Kiger, who was his neighbor all for those 25 years that he lived in, in California. Literally, they were um, a few yards um, from each other's house. Traveler's Companion for Joanne Kiger. If you're in a communicative mood, call us up. Anyway, have a good time and take care. Don't run out of gas. Don't get arrested. Don't hesitate. If you're the only one of your friends to get into Disneyland, think that's great and send out your report. This car's a steal at $200. This is the dessert Phoebe made. It says, fare thee well. The moldy dresses of Tijuana whores billow around your ears. Eyes might be truer. In any case, remember that what you see is as true as you see it and no sweat. As you get older, you feel cold more. This has been a light winter. You are a warm person. If you write, stay loose. Use a good notebook. Well, it's inspiring and becomes a part of everything that happens. Many suns and many moons. The tight squeeze of every moment's passing is upon you, but you wear it with bright assurance and a certain mystery. African sunrises are the greatest, and the dawn's ancient pueblos watch lifting from the prairies to the Pacific Ocean. When you snap this picture, put yourself in the group of the ultimate picture. Act your part as a metaphysical figure moving, imagining somehow a God's eye view, which must finally be your own, the real one. 
A stripped and ready consciousness is a handy item, though only that. Buenas tardes, senora. You may read less, talk to yourself more. When I say to myself, you, I mean, I think, the other person is listening and reacts. Obey the law. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. I'd go with you were my direction other than what it appears, close but veering and temporarily askew. I'll be back soon. I'll remember you to all your friends. Thank you, David McKee. Always ready, always on time, always prepared, and always that smile. Bill made life look so easy, but of course we know it was never easy. I was listening to a tune by Quincy Jones titled Meet B.B., which for Jones referred to the great Count Basie. And in that moment, I knew where to go. Because for me, B.B. could be Bill Berkson, a little jazz, that effortless, smooth Berkson glide, ready to sweep Connie across the floor, a touch of swing, followed by the surprise of an extremely abrupt ending. Let's stop and watch them for a moment. Ah, such grace. I wish we could play the tune. Before reading one quote from Bill's many writings on art, I would like to describe how Bill looked without any prejudice at drawings and paintings when visiting galleries. He might offer, it's good or not bad, and rarely criticized, at least not to me. At worst, you might hear, doesn't quite make it. One sensed that his perfect respect for an artist was part of his sublime and natural generosity. Even in conversation, Bill resisted the temptation to attack, but saw virtue where others didn't. We had a similar respect for what it took to be an artist, an unspoken recognition of the pain and anguish in taking the next step forward, the next stroke. He was always there for the artist, always willing to put his sophisticated eye at work to match his unique insights for expressing the visual into words. A memorable exhibition happened a few years ago when the gallery arranged a show of Guston's poem drawings at William Wordsworth's Dove Cottage in Grasmere, England. Bill soon got on board, and his unique con contributions made the event that much more poignant. The Wordsworth Trust found the funds to invite him, Clark Coolidge, and Bill Corbett to do readings and a discussion. In a characteristic way, I realized, he quickly rejected Wordsworth and was drawn to the work and humility of his sister Dorothy, so like Bill. Incidentally, 
the show looked remarkable in the cottage. A perfect harmony of line, words, stone, and ink. Bill died shortly before he and Connie were to visit us in the country. We were looking forward to him seeing us and I wanted him to see what was to be in their bedroom, a lovely landscape of Gloucester, Massachusetts by Reed Kay, for whom Bill had often expressed his admiration. Such accidental connections make art so rewarding. But alas, we were never to enjoy that moment. Before closing, I'd like to read a short passage from one of Bill's last essays, which describes an early understanding of the artist's world. It's taken from the foreword to his book published last year titled, New Energies, Philip Guston Among the Poets. He writes, for me, as for many friends my own age, poet friends my own age, Philip Guston became a hero and friend almost simultaneously. When we first met, he was nearing 50, and I was in my early 20s. I remember going with Frank O'Hara to his studio one flight up in an old firehouse on West 18th Street and for the first time experiencing that peculiar, discreet phenomenon, a painter's studio packed with elements of a substitute world. A weight in the air different from the buzz of frantic mess of other painters' lofts. The ambience was other than business as usual. Philip said later that I had been strangely silent. I'm sure that was true. I had no answer for being thunderstruck. We are so grateful that Connie so valiantly helped extend his beautiful, exciting life, which he happily shared with everybody. We shall miss him dearly. As Lewis Warsh mentioned, Bill published a magazine and books under the imprint Big Sky. And I've been carrying those words like a talisman uh, recently. And so I wanted to read three poems about Big Skies. The first is by the poet Anselm Holo, who wrote this little jewel-like poem for Bill. I bow to Hermes. Wait for the sun to rise in his bright shirt. Uh, the second poem is probably overly familiar to the people in the room, but um, the first time I heard it was as a, as a student in Bill's seminar at the San Francisco Art Institute, which is the nicest way to be introduced to anything. <laughs> and uh, so this is Frank O'Hara a true account of talking to the sun at Fire Island. The sun woke me this morning loud and clear, saying, hey, I've been trying to wake you up for 15 minutes. Don't be so rude. You're only the second poet I've ever chosen to speak to personally. So why aren't you more attentive? If I could burn you through the window, I would to wake you up. I can't hang around here all day. 
Sorry, son. I stayed up late last night talking to Hal. When I woke up Mayakovsky, he was a lot more prompt, the son said petulantly. Most people are up already waiting to see if I'm going to put in an appearance. I tried to apologize. I missed you yesterday. That's better, he said. I didn't know you'd come out. You may be wondering why I'm so close. Yes, I said, beginning to feel hot, wondering if maybe he wasn't burning me anyway. Frankly, I wanted to tell you I like your poetry. I see a lot on my rounds and you're okay. You may not be the greatest thing on earth, but you're different. Now, I've heard some say you're crazy, they being excessively calm themselves to my mind, and other crazy poets think you're a boring reactionary, not me. Just keep on like I do and pay no attention. You'll find that people will always will complain about the atmosphere, either too hot or too cold, too bright or too dark, days too short or too long. If you don't appear at all one day, they'll think you're lazy or dead. Just keep right on. I like it. And don't worry about your lineage, poetic or natural. The sun shines on the jungle, you know, on the tundra, the sea, the ghetto. Wherever you were, I knew it and I saw you moving. I was waiting for you to get to work. And now that you're making your own days, so to speak, even if no one reads you but me, you won't be depressed. Not everyone can look up, even at me. It hurts their eyes. Oh, son, I'm so grateful to you. Thanks, and remember, I'm watching. It's easier for me to speak to you out here. I don't have to slide down between buildings to get your ear. I know you love Manhattan, but you ought to look up more often. And always embrace things, people, earth, sky, stars, as I do, freely and with the appropriate sense of space. That is your inclination, known in the heavens, and you should follow it to hell if necessary, which I doubt. Maybe we'll speak again in Africa, of which I too am specially fond. Go back to sleep now, Frank, and I may leave a tiny poem in that brain of yours as my farewell. Son, don't go. I was awake at last. No, go I must. They're calling me. Who are they? Rising, he said, someday you'll know. They're calling you too. Darkly he rose, and then I slept. Uh, the last small poem I want to read is from the collaboration he did with George Schneeman, uh, those wonderful poem paintings. And um, it, it goes, stars fell, now the sky feels empty-handed. The gods must love you so. Thanks, Bill. The next reader is Anselm Berrigan. Hi. That sound all right? That loud enough back there? I'm going to read Bill's poem, Fugue State, and hope that I can find the right tempo to match his diction, which isn't like anybody else's. Okay. Fugue State. Worth mentioning? The horizon, such as is, splits mind across the middle, 
to turn in this world first, mirage of motel swale, votary albumens checked in coils, an ionosphere of certain age. The check is in the mail. When this arrives, millions cash in. Gone with its physics, the downy mist from motor in planks. Once I chased that same white vapor down a soft shoulder near the music tent. It must have been a singular joy to spy at dawn beyond to stand deep still and feed the stains. Signed, do tell. It so happens what chemically will invoice time to a rug shack. Gone tree, the alder now a gilded stump. The gridlock rose has mattered more to some with less and less to tune. Please notice the smallness pending there. That species worth mentioning, it will all return to fugue. Say to yourself, I used to. Let me count the ways to say I don't. Sexual union once was a paradigm. The 80s, though, afforded little random socializing. To operate both as a family and work at home, how many phones do you require? As in a fatalistic French movie circa 1957 to 1962, the plot element creasing a white linen suit, who taught you to smoke and drink and carry on like that? Amateur self always swapping cartoon bodies, not to mention the abstract wisps spilt in recollections, meadows, house guesses plated with resumable squat truths. Haven't you felt Mighty Mouse's female counterpart, can't think of her name, lean on you with lips of high gloss ginkgo dew? A seed bag of gravels for her furs. You take up a quill and inscribe the day's prophecies in nomenclature without apex. Beneath fumes, the project turns to swatting the states upon the hump. This visibility is notably perfect. I apportion whomever crosses under the lintel, but ever it falls to me. Gone are the states. Arise, Sir Knight. Whom do you most admire? What? is your least favorite egg concoction. Which preposition best exemplifies a grassy ridge the likes of which you see tantamount to yellow, desirous, resinous, albeit past all mention? Can you actually write in the dark by hand? Commit each folly? Tear down advance notice? The plums fall, nicked by stingers, a feather squeaks in the leaves, tuna leap from the ocean at 360 degrees, the more alert among us sit up and take notice, echoes in the machine part company, one by one the prawns mounted the barfly's plate. The past is a blur. Perhaps its task requires some special knowledge feeding afresh on what is already given a history of unintentional deletion embedded in its own epoch-making pause. Oh yeah, but hush. The letters wait on each vocable in the halls of permanent digress. They jangle, frowsed in mint, whole mounds of ends, letter of detriment the silhouette won't resist. Stupid language. The car is ready, I rise, scaling Everest. A stone leaf, as monetary as teeth. The box pictures the box. There is just the mold or mold of appearance proffered by a jelly jar. 
There are administrations more average in a cup. Bring on the menace, lest we euphemize the while. The air smacks, understanding little and bilious. It should learn to read. But there is too much meaning to leave us from meaning more. I finally heard and closed the book for fear. Something characteristically physical lifts its hind foot. How many deletions are still to be made? All that seems is substituted for on the inside out. And how will I know such shifted givens, O oh custodians far from home? When you leave the building, things suspend from here. Uh, please welcome Andy Arnaud. Uh, during my early years of uh, working at the gallery, T. Bordenage Gallery, um, uh, when I first met Bill, I always thought of him as a, as a Californian. I didn't know him when he lived in New York until more recently when he and Connie started to come uh, from time to time. Um, but um, I always thought of him in my way as kind of a quintessential Californian. And I also, <clears throat> maybe it's because he was so good looking, um, but uh, uh, I also go back to this drawing that Joe Brainerd did of um, of uh, Bill back in the early 70s. We had extremely long hair, this kind of scruffy beard, and um, kind of channeling JC a little bit <laughs> in my mind. And, uh, uh, um, and I, also, I always thought, well, if I met Bill back then, and he said, come out to Bellinas, come out to Bellinas. I said, yes, I will come out to Bellinas. <laughs> that sounds great, and uh, I will listen to what you have to say. And, uh, um, uh, but Bill was always, um, kind of my go-to guy in, in San Francisco and Connie too. It's like I, I was able to go on business every so often and uh, I would always contact them in advance and say, hey, I'm coming out and do you have a chance to get together? And if they were around, we always did and we would go to their apartment, my wife Michelle and I, and um, um, often start off looking at their beautiful art collection filled with artists that I knew very well, including Alex and George Schneeman and Joe Brainerd and um, Fairfield Porter and others, and not to mention um, uh, some San Francisco artists. And so it was really kind of through Bill in a way that I um, started to get turned on to the Bay Area artists and um, um, people like Jess and Bruce Connor and um, 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 oh dear David Ireland and then uh, but also younger people he was really into young artists like Coulter Jacobson which he did a book with and uh, um, I always um, um, admired that and also Bill was very kind you know he would say well you should go see Paula Anglum's show and you should go see Bruce Brownstein's show and he would recommend all these exhibitions and such and so. Uh, um, it was always very um, sweet to, uh, to see Bill and Connie out there and to um, be welcomed into, into their home and go out and have nice dinners and to um, talk about art but also poetry and uh, not that I'm a real poetry person but I do like to read poetry on occasion but I was really more into the poets and so he would often talk about the poets whether John Ashbery or Frank O'Hara or Larry Fagan or whoever it is and uh, it was always a big um, thrill to spend time with those guys and uh, um, but one time, um, I guess I first met Bill 20, 25 years ago, but then uh, one time I ran into him on Madison Avenue near 57th Street, and we were both taking the uptown bus, and um, I guess he was going to go see his mom, and I was living on the east side at the time, and the bus pulls up, and we get on, and Bill's like fumbling around, he's like, oh my gosh, I said, I don't have any money, <laughs> it's like, and I said, oh dear, I don't have any, I mean, I have a card, but I can't get you in, and so then he kind of like quietly sat down in the front, and I kind of like 
stood up in front of him, kind of half blocking his view from the bus driver. But then me being from the Midwest, I'm getting kind of nervous about the whole thing. And so the bus driver is just like looking at me like, uh, your buddy needs to pay. And I'm like, well, uh, you know, uh, and Bill's talking away and he's being very, you know, cool and the whole thing. And uh, uh, But every other stop, I'm looking at the driver and he's still looking at me like, dude, you know, you need to pay. And so anyways, so we get up to 86th Street finally. And um, we depart the bus, and Bill turns to the driver, as we often do, and, and he says, thank you very much for the ride. And, uh, and he gets off, and I turn to the driver, and I say, thank you very much. And he just looks, looks at me and shakes his head. Um, but uh, for me at that moment, it was like, okay, Bill's like a New Yorker, man. He, he, he knows how to navigate these kind of situations. And he, uh, he paid probably for thousands of rides, you know, over the years. And so it's like this was a gimme. So, you know, I, don't, you know I, I would like to pay, but I just don't have it. And so, uh, um, and, uh, um, and we kind of like, you know, um, uh, departed. But it was really kind of, I mean, he was like so smooth. And I was like, this guy, you know, he's a cool dude. I just like, I mean, he's nice. I like this guy. He's, he's great. And uh, um, so I've always had a, a very warm feeling um, um, for Bill, and I think we all know that he was so warm, so generous, so kind to everybody, you know, and um, um, I've always appreciated that, and Connie's the same, and I appreciate that as well. Um, I wanted to read a poem called All You Want, which is from his first book of poetry called Saturday Night, and um, I think he was probably in his early 20s when the book came out, so just kind of a phenom coming out of the blocks. Um, but again, it's called All You Want. Um, the alarm of a lighter morning, excuse me, the alarm of a lighter morning breeze before your eyes and pools of smoke that smell ridiculously like someone's raised eyebrow in a cyclone. It is complete to be dying slightly today and to want as if the leaf of your thoughts were pointing upwards at a field of hay in which a savage has struck some awful message. The soap is in your eyes, the fever's at your feet, where you sit is a honeycomb in which you're stuck, and it's safe to avoid the pleasures of the threshold. Sunday is like any other day of wires stretched across your torso, like a tie of red and gold on which a clock has set its chimes. It's dull to always weave a serpent in the from the air, and all the levees have sunk beneath your boat that goes and never falters like a clock striking two. The bars have opened, the churches have closed and everything will have a gleaming ring of stones around it as the windows remain full of palms. To open, a precarious waking, the wrists turning upwards, and you know that sentimentality is a razor that you walk on as a bird finds its boring nest. Sparks are strewn about the sidewalk, August is a matchbook, and your hearts flit with violence for striking in the surf of what you hope is activity, with your chest bared in the closing room of what you are and all you want. Tom, Tom Devaney. My name is Tom Devaney. And when I was reading through uh, Bill's poems over the past few months, I kept noticing how much air there is in those poems. And I was kind of just thinking about that as I'm sitting here. There's like air, making air, more air. And the poem that Vincent Katz read, Babies Awake Now, just improvisationally reading the last stanza. We're alive. You do alarm me to the fact. The light is on the window in the air. And breath 
comes faster than the hounds to sanction what remembered, what stuck. And that, and the fugue state that Anselm read has that kind of like irreducible measure of Bill that you can't actually ever sort of get, but it's there. I met Bill through Olivier Brossard, who is a French scholar and translator, and I think that's important to mention. And my friendship was deepened uh, because I spent a week with him in France. Um, my friend Susie Winston set up a, a residency, and then our, the relationship just grew out of that. These are some snippets from his book called Snippets. <laughs> For openers to be in love with words and hate the use that's made of them, how do you know you saw? Do you mean what you saw? Seven Agnes Martins around a room do no one any good. Art is best seen in specificity, alone in someone else's bathroom, for example. And gosh, man, he's so right. Those paintings are made to, to live with, even if you can't live with them. You can live with them, but one at a time. This is from a section in the snippets called Remarkable Occurrences Abroad, Numerous Vessels. That's the title. What if you had been known as the Brown Bomber? The constant misprint beyond similarity. People don't change, but they will listen to advice. That's in a section called Hell's Bells. Maybe has something to do with ACDC. Ancient steel. Here lies Bill, still. This is a snippet from another book, but I just had to put it in because it's my favorite snippet. Space goes on, lawless. This is the last part of snippets called Bedsides. How my mother in her last year asked me for the first time ever to read her some of my poems. And at the end of one of the bedside readings said, you take ordinary things and make something beautiful out of them. Another time, very late in the getting to know me game, imbued with all the futility she seemingly felt and what seemed a despairing sense of ever understanding what I was about said, well, you've had an interesting life. When talking to Bill, sometimes you had to ask the right questions. He was very generous, he's so warm. Probity, that Rod said, Ron. And I was talking to him about Virgil Thompson. We don't, it was, I don't know where it came from. And I just said, well, how did you meet Virgil? He said, and he brought up Kenneth Koch, and then he brought up Frank O'Hara. He said, oh yeah, but that's not how I met him. I met him because he came to my house for dinner. He, he liked my mom. And he's talking about Virgil. He's like, but whenever I think of Virgil, I just think of his voice. And 
And then he, he kind of like pulled back and he's like, yeah. And whenever I saw him out, he'd always do this thing to me. And he's like, I have to figure out how, how he did it. He'd say, how's mama? <laughs> That's my story about Virgil Thompson that Bill told me. He blurbed my last book, and it was very, and I, I just read it last night to see, like, oh, what was he saying about himself in my blurb? And I read it, and I said, God damn it. It's 100% me. And then I had a moment of truth, and I said, it's 100% Bill. And that's the insight that I, I've gleaned from Bill's criticism and his art about his friends that it's 100% about them, and it's 100% him. And I, I wrote a poem for Bill that uh, on the day that I found out that he died, um, Trevor Wingfield, my friend, who I also became friends with through Olivier Bursard, um, notified me because Connie had got in touch. And so um, here it is. I love Bill very much. Most of tomorrow, took off my glasses and put them back on again. I didn't think I needed them, yet as clear as cold feet, I did. No socks, no bill, my glasses, an old number two. For the past two weeks, on every list, I had his name. I'll be around most of tomorrow, Bill said, and the rest of the time, where? Number two added a word or two. Annual blood test. Sibling made close and breathing throughout. Wish I could eavesdrop. A line disappearing from his mouth. A tune titled Saturday Night. Moon people, goods and services. Repeat after me. Expect delays, portrait and dream. You and me. Dear Bill, I have a picture of your note in your hand. It was bruised all over. There's no concealing a hand. I don't know about that, I can hear him say. Oh yes you can, oh boy I do, in rich middle tones. A profile in exile. View over the bay at Cassis, your friend the journalist from Burgundy, and the cold white of the white still gives a chill. Found it back in New Jersey for $120 and considered it. Now, most of tomorrow has been gone for days, yet the part that was away from the start is still here, firsthand and near. Bill's message, back around nine. Nine. Nine will be fine. The next poet is Ann Waldman. Hello, everyone. Good evening. So great to have this room filled. And Moses, thanks for being such a great, have such great filial heart. Lynn, good to see you. And Connie, who did really take care of Bill so well these last years. Thank you all. So I'm going to start from a few lines from Bill's Not an Exit, which is in Expect Delays. I recommend this book. And this poem, Not an Exit, is a 
sort of lovely romantic uh, ramble poem compendium of dream quotation from Edwin Demby, Alex Katz, and others, what he's reading, various musings on art, life, travel, people, history. So this is first a quote. 1926 letters of Pasternak, Testeva, and Rilke, what Susan Sontag calls a portrait of the sacred, scared delirium of art, which may be just the delirium of writing letters to phantom ideal loves whose true love, as it happens, is art, poetry. This sentence already spinning away, drowning in whatever sympathy I muster for all of them, but they're all so inward, hardly a moment when any of them, Testeva's, the occasional exception, tells one salient thing about their days, the weather, gossip, happenstance. Art for them is shelter and feels puny on that account. And then he adds, mere piffle compared to the satanic delirium of email. I find this a very telling note Art for Bill was not shelter, not compartmentalized. It was a daily path, the feed, a lifeline, the open, the exposed, full of heart, the quotidian, the happenstance, the gossip, and as spiritual as it gets. That ethos permeated a very, uh, it was very imperial in that best sense. It was a kind of princely view and you had to rise with Bill to that high bar always and it was expected of you and that's what I appreciated so much about his ethos and his endless curiosity. I mean the last months in the spring before he passed away I saw quite a bit of him, you know, sitting with him at a movie, uh, sitting with him at a Douglas Dunn concert, listening to him. Actually the last conversation I think we had was about the uh, women of exp uh, the, the expressionism show, the abstract expressionism show that was opening in Denver. And he had the catalog and he was so curious about these women whose works he hadn't known. Uh, of course, he knew many of the writers in that show. And just his, his openness to younger writers, younger poets, uh, younger artists, and uh, many women. I found for a, a gentleman of the, you know, sharing the, the same moments of belletristic art and time, this great slice we all lived in, and, and it's so great to see so many of the people here who shared in that. He was, al it was always uh, as an equal, as somebody really embracing you for your, who you were and your work. So, um, yeah, it's not about shelter. And then I wanted to read just, a, this was a response, the Brooklyn Rail had asked me to write something, and I'll just read a few lines because it, it also is laced with lines from Bill's uh, poems, and then I'll just end with something I wrote for him that's in the Festschrift, this wonderful Festschrift, which I highly recommend because it has a, a great range of artists and poets in there. So thank you again to Jarrett and Isabel and to Bill Corbett. So it's tentatively called, and this is of work in progress. I think it will continue. Maybe it'll be uh, late Manhattan. Our friends will pass among you silently. Love this title of yours, Bill, but no, never silently, as the subtext is an adhesive roar to what counts, what sounds, what listens, what lights up the cortex in relation to you, Bill. You showed me the greatest poems of the century, and then I wrote the greatest poem of this century. 
In friendship, Bill held poetic etiquette together based on acute awareness of the whole ride, our 20th, 21st century, its lushness and panic, that post and mod stuff and that rich backdrop and what we can do inside it, shifting the frequency of all the most radicalized panoramas, wild mind connect, kinetics passed among us, bouncing in relation to it all. And the current, although it might seem breezy when it needed to be, language and curiosity made his poems. And Bill was paced at great urgency, aspiration always, steady towards the thrill, the mark of it, poem after poem in late age. Don't tarry, shape advancing, smilingly fit to print. Magic bells ring in a profound curiosity to high talk, as Ginsburg called it, of the New York school. He held that lineage beautifully, royally. What color is that, marimba, or just the talk? Gosh, look, Walt, they are laying track on market for the Muni. In this town of white and pastel girls, we want this urban renewal everywhere now. And there's the wonderful dream poem with Marcel Duchamp, where they are collaborating on a huge wall painting, and Bill paints a large gorilla you see, I say, we, Duchamp and I, are much the same, but mostly at the edges. And he was in touch of late daily, sending out blasts, as many of you know, posts of work to friends, the chapters from the wonderful memoir that, that Coffee House is going to do. Um, let's see. The clouds disentangle a perfect Mondrian, pure gray, to which you give nodding assent. Somewhat true, you are that helicopter primping for the climb into whose bed of historical certainty the fuel streaming down the sides like fun in the sun, air in the air. Live in that great sacred conversation of poetry, art, life, and your deeds are exemplary. And you soar. I had known Bill since 1966, the year Frank O'Hara died, the year we started this poetry project. It was before Bill had moved downtown, the year my mother, Francis Lefebvre, was in his class at the New School and sent weekly witty reports to me. Uh, I was in college in Vermont on the various assignments. He, he was quite the uh, extraordinary poet. I mean, this was a workshop. It was a reading and writing workshop. The people in the class, so on the gossip of the people in the class, which included Bernadette Mayer, Peter Sheldahl, Michael Brownstein, and Hannah Wiener, great story of Hannah Wiener, suddenly Bill is saying, you mustn't use colors in your poetry, and Hannah disappears from the class. And comments on what Bill is wearing, quote, this is from my mother's letters, he's such a dandy. Last night he was wearing a navy blue jacket, obviously new with brass buttons, and some of his ties are very loud, arty. It was at Bill's Uptown 57th Street apartment. I officially met Frank O'Hara, who invited me to intern at MoMA. Heartbreak, I needed the paying job, which turned out to be the poetry project for, what was it, about six grand a year. I remember thinking this will be also a Frank O'Hara project. And also I met William Burroughs at Bill's after a performance with John Giorno we'd had at the, had at the band show at Central Park. The job had just been published, and parts were, of that book were scary. That stuff about men uh, giving birth out of their anuses. But I could talk to William safe in Bill's zone. So Bill was an extraordinary connect dome. 
When he moved downtown, he was giving away many elegant shirts and suddenly everyone was a Bill avatar. Everyone had Bill's shirts and ties and suits, including Ted Berrigan, although Ted could have used a tailor to maybe make some adjustments, Dick Gallup, Ron Padgett, and others. And then as been, has been said tonight, you could count on Bill, you could trust him with many things, with a certain kind of uh, personal intimacy. You could go to him when things got hard. Um, so to count on a, you know, and, and somehow this guy who had dropped out of college, so erudite, so smart, we kept going on that motto, I think, for our lifetimes of helping wake the world up to itself. This was the way to live, art and poetry. It didn't matter what these maniacs were doing. I think we need to remember that. And don't complain. And a mind is a, a poem is a mind moving in all directions of space. He made the line, this vivid line, the orchid bears the twitch. My mind is such. So that wonderful twitch of Bill's, it's very, um, radical. I was going to read, there's some wonderful text coming up in the memoir and I'll just close I think from this poem called Our Large Algebra. Hinges particularly on enjoyment, the signifier purified, the last sip tested or tasted, passion and admiration, miraculous, a long life parallel and parallel and perilous in the increments of fun and time. You got grace, you got swing, you got poetry, I got it, and made a bond, a pact, a confessional cab ride, all people's desires we know sounding mythic through a lens of poetry or art or lines with letters connected in a way you hold truce and truth within, or factorial studying all operations and relations in a cranium of variables, vices and imperfections, gaze out our slushy metabolic streets, carnivalesque sweep of made-up phenomena, breeze at your eye, whispering love songs, long arabesque. Oh, my aria struggling with itself, identity and the right to be cheeky, girl, and you gave that permission, young Manhattan, possessive one I treasure, no squabbling over icons or who was he in Frank O'Hara's marvelous mythology. Amuse, of course, comrade, and he is that too, all of them, muses, a legend, as swank or jazz tone in and best dressed and so on, swift wit with that too sheds or engages, self-propelling talk of the instanter upon instanter thought process for polynomials, roots al-jabar, meaning restoration, unmitigated Babylonian task, consummate brother, and to Jim Carroll, too, asleep by the downtown door, deep pleasure pulsing with insight over that line of reticulation, a fine eye rules that margin of the lake, of the lagoon, an old school bus quaking, modernism stoned in her boots, no isms in this body suit, tough esthete, a supple ersatz question. What is it you actually care about? What gives you traction or surprise? Surface tension as New York school rattles the nomenclatures and Bellina shifts the polis, cooperative and liberating in that old lagoon. Seizes, describes, never postulates, but a cost spanking artificial universe from sweet bohemian days. Glory and antagonism and shiny speed, demon 
empower people and naturalization of populism, accessible to charm, harmony, the algebraic equation where you equal my unbridled enthusiasm for irreplaceable streets, complex avenues, our boulevards, quadruple it, and people we can escape to in reinvocation of multiplicity, place, high talk, poetry, transcendental imagination, embrace fabricated movie plots, the planet summoning to even greater tasks of love and valor. Get ready! And then a few lines to close from Bill. And this is a poem called Poetry and Sleep. All this, none of that, it matters here Dear illusory remains, we remember not what's allowed, but simply given antiseptic disputes over pure clove of youth. Bill, thank you, Bill, 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 thank you.
The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.